Thank you for engaging today's message with Wind River Community Church. Our prayer for you is that you will encounter Christ and grow in your relationship with Him. May this encourage you in connecting with other people who follow Jesus as well as knowing you are not alone. If you would like prayer, please text us at 307-240-8742 or if you would like more information about this program or past messages, visit our website at windriverchurch.com. I look forward to hearing what God is doing in your life. And now, here is today's message. This year, 2020, is going to go down in history as probably the most discouraging year we've ever had. We've had to deal with a pandemic that's brought everything in our everyday life to a screeching halt. We've been forced to do things like social distancing and wearing masks. We're forced to stop attending church and life groups and kids' church and youth group and many other events that we would have loved to have attended that would have been nourishment for our souls. We are told you can't fly off to go visit your relatives or friends, that you can't go to a restaurant and have a meal, that you shouldn't have anybody in your home for a dinner or a barbecue because you might put them and yourself at risk by being with them. And yet, we would watch from the confines of our homes thousands of people gathering together in close proximity, protesting all kinds of different things, and then those protests break out into civil unrest and usually end in violence. And some of the things that are going on is that in some of those cities that are prohibiting church attendance, the very mayor that says no church is the mayor that's out in close proximity in the protests with other people. And so now what we've got, we've got ourselves in this place where we're wondering what we should do. We find ourselves discouraged on multiple levels. On top of the pandemic restrictions and fears, we're having to wrestle with what it means to be a Christ follower in this age of unrest. Do we go out like everybody else and voice our disgruntled uh, opinions about what's going on within the church and create unrest ourselves? Or do we walk in the way that Jesus told us to walk? That we would do the, the things that would um, make Jesus famous around us. We now have a government and government officials who are supposed to be providing the help that we need. There are a lot of people who still need some financial or health support. Everybody needs some spiritual support. And yet, our government officials are turning all these things into some kind of a political motivated issue. And so what we have is we have the hurting and the lonely and the sick, sick marginalized. They've just become an issue for the election. This is almost more than what we can handle. It's almost more than what we can bear. We, we've been in a longer time of discouragement than we've ever had to face before in our lives. And we're discouraged with our political leaders and our medical advisors with the continual rhetoric about wear a mask, don't wear a mask. And by the way, there are strong opinions on both sides of that little issue. And then with the lack of connectedness and community, we're discouraged about our stagnant 
spiritual development and growth. You may even be discouraged with the church, what we are or what we're not doing. And I get it. But you might be thinking that pastors are immune to these kind of discouragements. But I'm going to tell you right now, and I'm going to speak for Pastor Matt and myself, we are not. During this time, we have had the joy sucked out of us. We have watched the, the, the people of God who have come together and used to fill this building up to overflowing disappear. For 14 weeks, they didn't get to hang out with anybody. And then we started to gradually come back together, and we were excited. And yet what we have watched is that there are people who are not coming to church. We're not, our egos are not connected to the numbers because what we do know is that when people don't come to church, they're usually not connecting. They're not in community. And when you're not in community and when you're not connecting with others, whether it's in a large group or in a small group, what happens is, is that you become disconnected in the community of faith. We saw how God was moving and working in the lives of men and women. How God was at work in our kids and youth ministry. We wondered if, and now, now we wonder if the gospel message that was given to them, that message that they received with joy, if it fell on stony ground, it sprung up, and now through the trials of life, they've just disappeared, and we're wondering if they'll ever come back. So we are discouraged. Believe me, we are genuinely concerned for you. And I know that there are some people that who have already come to the conclusion that they can do church at home by watching us live every Sunday morning. And that's a mistake. I understand it when, when you at home right now are watching because you're sick or you're ill or something else is going on and you just can't do it. Those are times why we have this set up. But for that to be your regular habit is not what we ever intended. Because in Proverbs it says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desires. He breaks out against all sound judgment. That means when you're not in community, connecting with other Christ followers, you become selfish. And sometimes you even become unfriendly and mean. Whereas what Jesus said is that all people will know that you're my disciples by the way you demonstrate love one for another. You can't do that in isolation. You cannot demonstrate the love that you're supposed to have for one another. And then what God does is he reminds us that we've been given this hope and it's beyond anything that our government can give to us. It's beyond anything that science can promise to us. And that hope stands at the door of the empty tomb. It's the greatest gift we've been given since the cross. And that gift is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit takes up residence in our hearts when we come to faith in Christ, and He does it forever. The Bible tells that we have the Holy Spirit forever. That means beyond this world. That's the greatest news we could have. He seals us, he confirms, he's certifying and assuring and as a pledge of our eternal state as children of God. Nobody can take that from you. Nobody. And, and Jesus said he would send the Spirit 
to be our helper, our comforter, our helper and guide. He said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Now the word counselor simply means one who is called to come alongside. And it's the idea of someone who encourages and exhorts us. The Holy Spirit takes up permanent resident in the hearts of believers. Jesus gave the Spirit as a compensation for his absence to perform the functions towards us which he would have done if he would have remained here personally with us. Among the functions of the Holy Spirit is that he is the revealer of truth. The Spirit's presence within us enables us to understand and interpret God's word. Jesus told his disciples, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He reveals to our minds the whole counsel of God as it relates to worship and doctrine and living as Christ's followers. He is the ultimate guide in going before and leading the way, removing obstructions, opening up understanding, and making all things plain and clear. He leads in the way that we should go in all spiritual things. Without such a guide, we would be apt to fall into error. A critical part of the truth he reveals is that Jesus is who he says he is. That the Spirit convinces us of Jesus' deity and incarnation. Jesus is the beginning and the end. He is the Messiah. He is the suffering Messiah. And it was through his death, resurrection, and ascension that we are who we are and we have who we have in our lives. The Holy Spirit's exaltation of Jesus is because Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, waiting for him to come, for the Father to give him the message, go back and get him and bring him home. And the Holy Spirit, his greatest joy in his ministry among us and with us, is to bring glory to Jesus. The Spirit also functions as the fruit producer in our lives. When He indwells us, He begins the work of harvesting His fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are not the works of the flesh, which is incapable of producing such good fruit. But they are the products of the Spirit's presence in our lives. The knowledge that the Holy Spirit of God has taken up resident in our lives, that He performs all these miraculous functions, that He dwells with us forever, and that He will never leave or forsake us, is cause for the greatest joy and comfort we should ever know. So with the reminder that we are blessed with the presence of and work of the Holy Spirit, which then, as Jesus would say, makes all things possible with God at work in our lives. Because what we do then is we continue to trust in the Lord with all our heart, not lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways we will acknowledge God so that he can make our path straight. That's what salvation looks like for those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Even when we're discouraged. Now the, the Apostle Peter... He was dealing with a group of churches who were facing discouragement, probably at a greater level than what we are. And as he wrote to them, he wanted to bring some much-needed encouragement to their lives and to their situation. So let's take a look at what he wrote to the churches in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. These churches were starting to wonder if this is where they were going to be stuck. Was there any hope for them? Did they have any kind of a future? Or would they just have to go on suffering like good soldiers stuck in the trenches and just do this all the time and have no reprieve from the suffering, from the anxieties, from the, the work of, the, of the, the enemy that's working on their soul to bring discouragement to them. They were weary and worn out and just needed a little word of encouragement. Spiritually, these people were like dry reeds, and they'd been dry too long. Their souls were parched, and they were longing for something, some refreshing in life. And they, at one point, had been filled with an abundance of life when they had first heard the gospel message of Jesus. And, and then they came to, when they came to him, and they drank deeply by faith from the well of Jesus and were giving a living hope, living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. So Peter sets out at the beginning of this letter to the, his churches to bring them a little bit of hope and remind them of their living hope in Jesus, and then to get their hearts set on the things of God so that they can start to see and experience the living hope of Jesus in their lives. If we go back to 1 Peter 1.10, Peter says this, Concerning this, this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. <clears throat> this salvation is referring to the previous verses that Peter had just written. And I just want to remind you about that because he reminds them that there is a future reward in this salvation. He goes on to say, as encouragingly as he can to them, that it, this salvation is not without its adversities and difficulties. There is a depth that grows our faith as we go through hard and difficult and trying times. And now people, Peter reminds them that this salvation has a rich uh, prophetic past in it. Peter's readers hear the words. As they hear the words, they are brought up onto their feet, pronouncing a blessing on God. Next, he poured out refreshing waters of a living hope over them. Then he carried them heavenward by speaking of future inheritance that was imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now Peter introduces his recipients of this letter to the office of the prophets that God instituted in Deuteronomy. God's chosen men. God chose a group of men, listen, to be called into the office of being a prophet for God was not a glorious position. It wasn't something somebody strived for. Nobody woke up in the morning and goes, I think I want to be a prophet today. Because 
the problem with being a prophet is what would happen is God would give you a message because the people didn't want to hear directly from God, so they begged God to give them a, a prophet who would speak for God on his behalf. The first one was Moses. And so they would stand in the gap, as it were. They would hear what God has to say. They would turn around and then they would say, Thus says the Lord, Repent and come back to Him or else. And most of the times, they would repent and they would come back. But there was a large portion of times when they would not repent and come back. And so the major task of the prophets, as Peter says, was that they were about the grace that was to be yours. They were searching for it. They were inquiring on it. They were asking God about it. God asked them to do this. And the fullness of that grace was only going to be, be, be fulfilled by the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One, Jesus Christ. And God gave Isaiah the noble task of bringing that message to King Ahaz, who was a wicked and evil king that God was going to punish. Now, I don't know what you know about King Ahaz. He was a grandson, great-great-grandson of King David. And this is after the kingdom of Israel had been split into two, two nations, the northern being Israel and the southern being Judah. And, and Ahaz was the king of Judah. And he, when you read about him, the Bible says that he became king when he was 20 years old, and he did not serve God as his father David did, but as his own father, who was a wicked man, did. This is how wicked Ahaz is. He took his own son and he offered him as a burnt sacrifice to a foreign god. That's naughty. That's wrong. That's sinful. And so now what's happening is Isaiah is coming to him because God already said that he's going to bring the Chaldeans, the Babylonians in, and they're going to, to take Judah, and they're going to take her into captivity, and King Ahaz is going to be going along the way. But what King Ahaz is worried about all of a sudden, when his life is on the line, is, is God going to annihilate all of his people forever? And God says, I promise you I won't do that. And King Ahaz is like, well, how do we know? So here's what the Lord spoke to Ahaz and says to him. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. Okay, let me stop right there. He's saying, you ask for anything you want as a sign. That's what God's telling him. You can ask me for anything. Do you want me to switch the way that the sun comes up in the morning? Instead of it coming up in the east, I'll have it come up in the west. Do you want me to do that? Because I'll do that if that's going to be the sign for you. Do you want me to uh, rearrange the stars so that they spell your name in the sky? I would do that for you. Because he's, ask, he's saying, ask whatever you want and I'll do it to make this known to you. And look how Ahaz responds. He says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Okay, because you're too much of a chicken to ask God for a sign, God's going to do the work, hard work for you. So here's the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. There it is. 
this is the sign that God is going to redeem not just Israel and Judah to himself, but he is going to bring redemption to every man that walks on earth. Man, woman, child, whoever puts their faith in this one who is born, conceived of the virgin and born, and his name is Emmanuel. Who is that? Jesus. He is the one. That is God coming through big time. Not just for all of Israel, but for the entire world. It's more to this story of hope and redemption. There's going to be a part of this story that God's giving to, to Ahaz and to uh, all of Israel through Isaiah that, that is going to blow their minds because they could never wrap their head around how is this actually going to be? Someone who's going to come and rescue us is going to have to go through some really difficult times and it makes your head spin. And actually what happens is, when it took place, the people who should have been looking for it didn't see it, even though it was right before their faces. In Isaiah 9, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Do you want to know what grace is? The Old Testament, that the, the prophets were looking for this grace that God had promised to them, here it is right here. It's the grace of the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That is the grace of God being poured out to the hearts of men and women all over the place. And just in case the people didn't get the picture of what this grace was going to look like and what it would take for it to become reality to all of mankind, human beings, all around the world... And, and how it would be real in the lives of those who would benefit from this living hope, God gave yet another picture of what the Messiah must suffer in order for us to know the grace that will come from Him. Now, I'm going to read a little bit in Isaiah 53 before you catch up with me. It'll be on the slide in just a minute. You'll know when it is. And here's what Isaiah 53 says. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hid their faith faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now, verse 4, where you're going to pick it up on the screen, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the suffering 
that the Messiah would have to go to. This is what the, Paul Peter's talking about with the prophets. The, Isaiah and all the rest of the prophets are prophesying about the Messiah who is yet to come and what he will do. But in order for him to do what he's going to do, to be our Redeemer, to be the one who restores us in relationship with God, he is going to have to suffer may, many great and awful things on our behalf because our iniquity, our transgression, our sin has been placed on Him and He took the punishment for it. I want you to know something. All those words in Isaiah chapter 53, you should go home and read it. You should pour over it. You should look and see what Jesus did on your behalf because all those things have come to pass. They have been fulfilled by Jesus. And now he sits on his throne next to his Father in heaven. And because of all he went through, because of all the suffering he endured, because he was willing to take the most wicked punishment that could ever be devised, we, like the recipients of, of Peter's first letter, we have all been adopted into the family of God, not because of anything we have done, but solely because Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross for the glory of his Father. And that is why we have these promises that we often forget. We overlook them. In a time of discouragement, we can't think of anything else but our own discouraging, miserable life. And so we don't Go back and find the promises of God that are meant for us. So let me give you some out of Isaiah. Let these encourage your heart today. Because Isaiah 40 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's your promise. As you wait for the Lord, He will renew your strength. But you have to wait. Stop being so hurried. Stop thinking you got to go everywhere and do everything. Take time. Be in the presence of God. God said this, be still and know that I am God. The first place you have to learn how to be still is here. Because when you can be still here, then you will be still here. And when you're still here and you are still here, then you will hear the voice of God. Now, if those verses out of Isaiah 40 aren't enough to get you up and going every day, God gives you a little bit more in 41. He says, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He goes on to say, for I, the Lord your God, Hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Who is the Holy One of Israel? Jesus. Say it again. Jesus. All right, believe it now. 
He is your help. You have this Redeemer. His name is Jesus. He was raised to life and is now interceding on your behalf in the throne room of God. And we have an advocate who has our best interests in mind. He is taking all of our greatest needs and he's bringing them to the Father on our behalf. So here's my questions for you. What are you afraid of? What are you having a hard time trusting God with? If Jesus is willing to be our substitutionary whipping boy for God, don't you think he's still in the place of wanting to help us in this 2020 year of discouragement? He is your help and your portion. He is your strength when you are weak. You have got to rely on him, not yourself, not the government, not science. Science and the government and doctors and all the rest of those guys, God we thank you for them because they're helping us. But that is not where our hope lies. The churches that Peter's writing to have been in a time of discouragement as well. And they need to hear some encouraging news that will help them as they face the difficulties of their exile. So let's look at verse 11. Peter tells the church that these prophets were searching carefully, inquiring what the person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. I want you to get three things out of here. First of all, Peter does this thing very specifically, and he uses this phrase, the Spirit of Christ. Because he's, what he is doing he is he's identifying for us, helping us to understand the pre-existence of Christ. Before he came to earth, he always existed. The pre-incarnate Christ always existed. He is eternal. He always was with God. He is God. He, the Father, and the, the Spirit, all together one. And so he uses that phrase for his hearers to hear that Jesus, that the Christ who was here, the one who suffered all these things, is the one who was eternal. Therefore, we can put our trust in him. And then he's, he's indicating that, that this Christ, Jesus, also was the suffering Christ. He's the suffering Messiah, as found in Isaiah 53. And then he says that there's the subsequent glories that come with him. But the glory only came after Jesus suffered many things. Do you think we should be any different than Jesus? No. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's for us, because we're going to suffer. But guess what? Subsequent glories are waiting for us. So in essence, these words show us that the prophets were given a particular insight into salvation's mystery, because it was a mystery to them. That the Christ would be a suffering Christ, and that the only suffering would be given, only after suffering, he would be given the subsequent glories. Here is one of the major problems with, with a suffering Messiah for Jewish people. They weren't looking for a suffering Messiah. They were looking for a conquering Messiah. They were looking for one who was going to set them free from the tyranny of the Roman government. Because the Roman government was so oppressive and restrictive. And eventually they became merciless and ruthless in their attack. Not only on the Jews 
uh, Jewish population, but more so on Christ's followers. What they were looking for was a Messiah who would come in and bring a sword and put their foes to the run and then establish his kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of Israel forever. But that's not who Jesus was. That is not who God sent him to be. He sent him to be the suffering Messiah. He sent him to come as the lamb who would take away our sins. He sent him as the one who would come and help us to understand that even in our discouragement, we have one who sympathizes with us. Because he's gone through suffering himself. He could relate to everything that we're ever going to go through. Matter of fact, the author of the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, he says, we have a great high priest who sympathizes with us in every respect and intercedes for us at all times. You know when you just don't know what to pray? You know when you're just kind of tapped out and you don't know what to do? Take heart. Jesus is praying for you. So it had been a woohoo somewhere in there, a little something like that. But one of, the great, one of the questions we have before us is, what drove the prophets to continue in their searching and inquiring? It was the Spirit of Christ. You know, in, in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, he says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the living word, Jesus. Jesus is the living, the pre-incarnate Jesus was the living word. He was the words that were given to the prophet. He's the one that encouraged and spurned them on and helped them to keep searching and reading and looking at the writings of the prophets of old so that they would come to this understanding and have this knowledge of the grace that comes through the suffering Messiah who was there for us. There was a purpose at their work. They had this great purpose. That's why they pressed on. That's why they kept digging in. That's why they kept looking. That's why they kept studying. That's why they kept looking for everything to find it out because they had a purpose. And before I tell you what that purpose is, I want us to understand something that is noteworthy for us to see how important and empowering it is to have the Spirit at work in us and through us. Because in Romans 8 it says, you, that's you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. You who are in Christ Jesus are in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So here's the big question from that. How do you know if you have the Spirit of Christ in you? Well, there's a myriad of ways of knowing. That's why it's important for you to read the Bible. Because when you read about the fruit of the Spirit, then you start to identify some of those things that God's doing in your life. And you go, oh, look. I now love people who were unlovely to me before. I am patience. When I need patience, the Spirit of God gives me patience. It's not like you asking him to fill up a little tank over here, patience for you. It's at the moment that you don't have any patience that the Spirit of God gives you patience. At the moment you need to be kind to someone, he gives you kindness. All these different things that you need in your life, at the moment you need them, when you are filled with the Spirit of God, He will give those things to you. But the most predominant and identifying thing that the Spirit of God will do in you is He will create this love, this unnatural love, that gives you the ability to, to do what Jesus called you to do. Because Jesus said that all people will know you were my disciples 
that you have the spirit of work in your life and that you belong to another kingdom and that you are not a self-serving, individualistic, egocentric person if you have love one for another. When you're loving other people, especially the people in this household of faith and the other households of faith that claim Jesus as their Savior, when you go and you meet with those people, you were never, there are a lot of those people that you would go like, we're never going to be pizza buddies, we're never going to go bowling together, but yet what the Spirit of God does is He increases your ability to love those people. And that is the identifying marker of the Holy Spirit activity in your life. Now, I want you to know something. You cannot express that love to others if you are not in close proximity. Now, do not misunderstand what I just said and do not put words in my mouth. I don't put words in your mouth, so don't put any in mine. I'm not advocating for careless contact with others to demonstrate your love for each other by being in close proximity. What I am saying is that you can be in close proximity without being in close proximity. We live in a time and age when you can actually FaceTime somebody and look them right in the face. I FaceTime my brother in France. We are not in close proximity until he turns his French phone on and it says, Bonjour, comment ça va? And I say, Fermez le bouche, grand vache. Which basically means shut your mouth, you big cow. And then we have this conversation face to face. proximity now over the phone. That's what I'm talking about now in this day and age when we are called to isolate. Don't isolate. Get in proximity. Use what God has given you as tools to do that. But back to our question about the prophets. What was the purpose of their searching carefully and inquiring? Well, verse 12 tells us. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that they have now been announced, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I'm going to tell you right now that when the first readers that Peter wrote this to all those churches in that, in that area that he was writing to, all those churches, when they heard that the, the prophets were doing all these things not for themselves, but for you, they went, what? God had people already destined, predestined, set up to do something for me long before I was even walking on this planet because I would come to faith in Jesus? Yes! God was thinking about you through the prophets and had them working on your behalf before you were even there. And they're like, wow. What's Peter doing? He's building upon the prophets. He introduces not only the prophets, they get that, but now he introduces for the first time those who preach the gospel to these early readers. He wanted them to know that God sent more than just spirit more than spirit-filled prophets to them. He sent preachers too. Never again could these churches wander off into dejection without having the word of God in their midst to shore them up during the difficult days. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, Peter is proving God's love for them. He's proving it for you too. Be encouraged, my friends. God loves you more than anything. Because of Peter's He got on this roll, kind of like I am. And he can't contain himself. 
And so he throws the third encouraging word to his readers about this salvation's past glories. Not only did God put prophets and preachers to work for them, he did so with a message so great. The message of Jesus is so great that the angelic hosts stand at rapt attention as they watch it unfold. Angels long to look into these things. They love to see the message, the gospel message of Jesus being preached and the Holy Spirit stirring the hearts of the people. And then they come in conviction to the message, uh, the gospel message of Jesus, and they surrender their lives to Jesus. They find forgiveness of sin. They have been given forgiveness, and they've extended into this family of God now. And all angels can do is watch with anticipation, anticipation and amazement. You get to experience something no angel will ever experience, ever. Do you know what that is? Forgiveness. You can experience forgiveness. Every time you mess up, you will experience forgiveness. Do you remember the story of when Lucifer fell from heaven? He was the, there were three, there was Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer, the, the big three angels in heaven. And they all given, one was the archangel, one was a mess, Michael's the messenger angel, Gabriel is the guy with the sword that <clears throat> splits you from your groin to your gullet, and then Lucifer was the worship angel. And when he fell from heaven, when he, tri when he tried the coup d'etat in heaven, and God threw him out of heaven, one-third of all the angels fell with him. They became demons. That one-third, they will never experience the forgiveness of God. You will, but they will not. It's this mystery of the forgiveness, the message, the gospel. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, not Peter, Paul says it this way in Ephesians. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, that's you and me, by the way, the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, the salvation, the, the suffering Messiah, the one who goes to the cross and, and procures our salvation and our inheritance in heaven, Jesus, who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You see, they've all been longing to watch this thing and now it's coming to fruition and now they're excited to celebrate what God's doing in and amongst us. And so even now, in these days, of the, in this year of discouragement, there are three truths that are brought out for us today. First, the prophets labored their entire lives to present the true gospel to us. Second, preachers have traveled around the globe to ensure that we were able to hear that message. Peter and Paul and Thomas and Philip, Matthew, Mark, Luke, he recorded a lot of it. All that went on our behalf. Because if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be sitting here now. 
And the third is the angels would like nothing better than to gaze in what God has done for us. Now, I know you're surprised at how much God cares for you. Ancient prophets, itinerant preachers, exalted angels have stood for ages in the service of this salvation that has come to us. The fullness of your salvation has been the joyful business of God's servant over centuries, even in difficult times. Knowing this, I hope that you have a surge of spiritual fortitude to remain faithful where God has you placed. Hearts were made to rise in worship, and looking ahead, our minds are to be made ready for action because of the work that God has done through people before us. Our present hope and our future hope are established on the hard work of those God gave the task of inquiring and searching out things to, to give us the hope found in the Messiah, the Christ, for our behalf. It is the benefit of every person in the future who would follow the call of God that has put their place in Christ Jesus to know and experience living hope that can never be removed or taken away from them. Amen? Heavenly Father, these words that you have brought to us today are much-needed encouragement. We're amazed at the majestic history of our salvation. We thank you today for the prophets, the preachers of old, all those who went before us. We're thrilled at the notion that the, the, the faithful service of you, your servants have prepared our hearts to receive what you have given to us through Christ Jesus. And now may we live in this present day with the discouragement that wants to press in on us with the recognition that all the past work was for our encouragement. May we be found as those who have waited upon the Lord that our strength will be renewed and we will see the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. So how, save us from the sin of self-pity and give us the strength of Christ Jesus and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to press on. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.